Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. story is just too good not to be believed. And I think that idea fits well with the story of McCullough's Lee. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Al Dickinson discussing the dramatic and mysterious leap of Samuel McCulloch during the American Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, the Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Al Dickinson, and he'll be discussing the 1777 leap of Samuel McCulloch. You know, one of the things you find in the American Revolution are not just amazing stories of battles and patriotism and heroism, but you find this interesting trend where amazing feats of strength uh, and accomplishment, physical accomplishment, survive. Uh, we think of Robert Rogers, right, sliding down an impossible rock face in the uh, upstate New York. Uh, and one of the things that we're going to talk about tonight is Samuel McCulloch. Uh, near Wheeling, West Virginia. Wheeling, Virginia at the time, making another impossible leap. Uh, it's, a, it's a strange thing why these stories survive. I mean, the very obvious answer is they survived because they were astounding. Uh, but they seem to happen in all theaters of the Revolution in almost every year of the war. Al Dickinson's going to take us through that tonight and see exactly what Samuel McCulloch was up to that September day. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Al Dickinson. Al Dickinson, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me again, Brady. Al, you've been on the show before. Tell us about your background. Sure. Um, so I have undergraduate degrees in history, communication, and English writing from Wisconsin Lutheran College. Uh, that's based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, my interests, uh, I have interest in a variety of topics, but most uh prominently, you know, how media has shaped history, the political landscape of the American Revolution, and probably most importantly and most interesting to me is how history impacts and informs our, our present selves. Al, what drew your interest into this topic? Yeah, uh, that's an interesting story a little bit. Uh, my family had planned a trip out to the Wheeling, uh, Pittsburgh area, and we, uh, we all love seeing historical sites and cemeteries, things along those lines. Uh, it was actually my wife who first discovered uh, the McCullough's Leap Monument, you know, looked it up. Uh, so that we put that on our itinerary to go visit while we were out there. So that part, that first part was kind of really just happenstance. Uh, but then what further drew me to it was how little information there really is on this topic. You know, why is there a monument to... Uh, something like this, you know, there's, there's a limited amount of historical evidence to back it up, that sort of thing. Uh, and 
to me as a historian, the research aspect is, is what really, really interests me about it. You know, in a lot of ways, it's kind of, you know, historians in a lot of ways serve kind of as detectives of the historical record. And so that really drew me to it. Al, could you talk about Wheeling's role in the American Revolution? Yeah, Wheeling um, in the American Revolution era was really just an outpost. Um, You know, there wasn't much happening there, Uh, you know, along the Ohio River. It was probably one of the furthest west, western uh, communities uh, that was established out there in in the era. You know, it would have all been wilderness, you know, forests and, you know, just wild country. The next closest established community would probably be Fort Pitt. Uh, and that was a good ways away. Um, you know, there were, you know, there were a few outposts farther west and up and down the Ohio River. Uh, but in a lot of ways, Wheeling was kind of the end of the line. Uh, and so uh, within the context of the American Revolution itself, it didn't have a whole lot going on. There's not a huge presence of Wheeling, uh, Virginia at that time, now West Virginia, uh, except for fending off a few minor incursions from the British uh, coming from Canada or Detroit, maybe, uh, or maybe some of the Native American tribes that had allied with the British. What was the situation around Fort Henry in 1777? Yep. This, uh, this period was not a great period for uh, Fort Henry. Um, Aside from the the usual issues that settlers would have had to face, harsh weather, the lack of supplies or food, uh, things like that, uh, raids from the Native Americans, uh, things along those lines, you know, the the community, the Fort Henry and the surrounding area also had to face the fact that they were not well, they weren't high on the priority list for uh, you know, the war effort or the, uh, you know, the governing bodies, uh, you know, uh, during the war. So as a young nation, you know, in that same vein, uh, you know, the British and the Native Americans were eager to reclaim some of their lost territory. Uh, and they, you know, the farther west you, you went, the less likely you were to run into uh, Continental Army. Um, So, like I say, it wasn't a great period for them. We have documents telling us about several attacks on Fort Henry and Wheeling, uh, the two biggest being uh, the one in 1777 and the one in 1782. Uh, So that's that's two sieges in five years, uh, and that's not even counting the various skirmishes that that happened between those two. Um, As you read the the article, too, you can see that uh, in 1777, at, at the very least, the garrison's commander at Fort Henry, uh, David Shepard, that was, had to call from reinforcements to ward off uh, what was only a few hundred uh, Native American attackers. Uh, and those reinforcements came from miles around, but had to travel. But travel at that time was considerably more difficult uh, and took a lot of time for them to get there uh, and help defend it. Uh, and that's kind of actually where the story of Samuel McCulloch kind of starts too. Al, who was Samuel McCulloch? Yeah, that is a, that is a really good question. And honestly, we don't know a whole lot about Samuel McCulloch. He's a figure who appears uh, in the historical records and then disappears 
rather rather quickly. We think he was born in 1752 uh, to the McCullough family of Wheeling, uh, which was one of the town's more prominent uh, families. So the first 25 years of his life from life from 1752 to 1777, when the uh, raid on Fort Henry occurred, or the first raid on Fort Henry, uh, those years are really silent. He's, uh, we don't know anything about him, uh, but then he's put in charge of the, the garrison at uh, Fort Van Meter, which is a little southeast of Wheeling. Um, but then after the raid on Fort Henry, uh, he went silent again. Uh, that is until his death in 1782 uh, at the age of 30. And, you know, in my mind, that's a pretty remarkable life for a 30-year-old, you know, having a legend named after you and all that and, you know, being well-known in the in the era. Um, but we really don't have much information about his profession uh, or his personal life. He has no descendants that we're aware of. You know, one I spoke with one historian uh, who specializes in local wheeling history, and uh, I asked him why there are so few records of uh, Samuel McCullough, Major Major Sam, as they call him there. Uh, and his reasoning was that at the time during the American Revolution, the you know all of that Western country, Western backcountry. Uh, was all under martial law. And to me, that makes sense to some regard, but also I question, I question that a little bit, doesn't quite answer the question of why there aren't any records of him before the American Revolution either. Um, you know, again, that would answer why he doesn't come up very much in uh, during the American Revolution or beyond his, you know, his involvement with the siege of Fort Henry um, and then his death. Um, like I said, doesn't answer many of our other questions. Uh, so in all, in all reality, he really is a man of mystery. This is the moment, Al. Tell us about his uh, legendary leap. Sure. So the leap story, uh, like I mentioned, uh, Fort Henry's commanding officer, David Shepard, had uh, called for reinforcements uh, after he heard uh, of rumors that uh, an Indian raid uh might occur maybe backed up by some uh, British Rangers for coming out of the Detroit area. Uh, so he called for called for reinforcements. Uh, McCullough, along with uh, many other uh, garrison commanders or captains, uh, answered the call. Uh, and like I said, this is kind of where McCullough's uh, history becomes. Um, maybe more heroic than uh, than what we can prove for sure. Uh, so the idea is that in overseeing his men's safety, uh, McCullough, uh, and ensuring that they reached the fort, uh, McCullough actually neglected his own safety uh, and became separated from his men uh, and surrounded by, by the Native Americans uh, that were attacking Fort Henry at the time. And so his, his choice the only remaining choice for him was to run up Wheeling Hill. Um, if you've ever seen this part of the country, it's very hilly. Uh, you know, so you're never, never sure what kind of terrain you're going to be hitting. Uh, but once McCullough reaches the top of the hill, uh, he sees that there's a steep cliff on the other side 
the Indians are closing in on him. You know, he really doesn't have any choice. You know, as the, the legend goes, probably being either very brave, or very stupid, or very desperate, McCullough makes his his famous leap. Uh, depending on which source you find more reliable, the drop is either 100 or 150 or 300 feet. Uh, but either way, whichever it is, that's certainly a, a big enough jump that would injure somebody, right? And then, but in the end of the legend, as, again, as it goes, uh, McCullough gets by unscathed, and so does his horse. They both ride off after they land uh, with no injuries to, to either of them. Al, what are the facts that contradict this event? There's There's a lot of contradicting facts with this event. Uh, and this is really the crux of the historical controversy. We know really very, very little about it. Uh, the contemporary rec- records that we do have, and these are coming from witnesses who wrote down these uh, memories, you know, years or sometimes decades after the fact. And they, they all do indicate that some uh, I'll use miraculous uh, leap did happen at Fort Henry during the American Revolution. So that that's what that's what we can agree on, let's say. But the, but beyond that, we have a lot of different questions. Some people say uh, it was McCullough who made the leap. Others say it was Andrew Zane, who uh, Andrew Zane was part of Wheeling's other major family, the Zanes. Uh, some say this leap occurred in 1777 others in 1782. Uh, you know, those are the years when those the two big sie- uh, sieges took place at Fort Henry. If we're going with the fact, or if we're going with the idea that McCullough made this leap, or this jump, it would have to have been in 1777, since by September of 1782, he was already dead. Uh, but like I mentioned, these sources, none of them can agree on the height of the jump, uh, exactly on the year, exactly on who who participated in uh, you know in this fabled leap. There's there's just tons of contradicting facts revolving around this case. Again, the bare minimum is that something something of note, you know, a leap of note occurred to escape the attacking Native Americans. But beyond that, that's where things get a little. Uh, kind of touch and go, you know. Al, could you explore how the legend evolved over time? Um, throughout the throughout this interview and throughout the article that you you can read, uh, the story really is a confusing one, which makes it really difficult to verify much of anything about it. Um, you know, so how it evolved over over time, that's it's really tough to say. Uh, you know, they've obviously kind of memorialized it. You know, there's a, uh, a, a monument to it that was set up by the Daughters of the American Revolution uh, in uh, 1917, I believe. Uh, so obviously they had some, you know, interest in the, in the topic, in the, the, you know, from the local Wheeling chapter uh, of the Daughters of the American Revolution uh, but you know, like I said, it it really did just like you like you mentioned it. It went down from generation to generation. I think uh, over over time, there really haven't been too many changes to 
you know, what facts that we know or the facts that, uh, you know, or, or the, the claims that have yet to be proven, uh, you know, but there's, there's a lot major Sam, uh, as like I say, as the local wheeling natives call him, uh, you know, he's their local hero. You know, they have the memorial dedicated to him. They have streets and bars named after him or his leap. There's their entries in encyclopedias and local history books and, and websites and more that all talk about major Sam or his fabled leap. Uh, and so over time, you know, his, his legend kept on growing, I think. And it really doesn't seem like uh, it's in a hurry to, to die down. So. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Sure. Uh, so I guess I would re- refer a lot to what I've just talked about. Um, you know, at the end of my article, I refer to uh, Paula Hunt. Who, she's a historian who has written a lot about Sybil Levington, uh, well, another character of uh, mythical qualities uh, from that same era. Uh, and Hunt said something really cool, I think, uh, something along the lines of this story of, you know, in her case, Sybil Ludington, in this case, McCullough's Leap, this story is just too good not to be believed. And I think that idea fits well with the story of McCullough's Leap. Uh, um, and, you know, I can understand part of that. You know, we all want to be part of something bigger. You know, we all want to be part of, you know, a big event in history or, you know, a movement or something along those lines. You know, wouldn't it be great for people to say, you know, people of Wheeling, you know, we have a local history or a local hero in our history that helped liberate this country from British tyranny or, you know, something along those lines. And to some regard, you know, that's, that's understandable. That's okay. You know, we can all idolize things. We can all, uh, you know, hold things in a high regard and uh, hope for something along those lines to help, you know, inspire us or give us pride and things along those lines. That's, that's nothing wrong with that intrinsically. Uh, but also at that same time, we have to realize that just because we believe it doesn't mean it's true. Uh, and I think that's, I think we can see that a lot in throughout the American revolution. You know, there's a lot of myths around, around that. Uh, and there's a lot of myths around every other t- uh, period in history, you know, just because we believe something or just because we're, we're told, uh, you know, to believe this or that this happened doesn't necessarily make it true. And that, and that's really the part of, of people to, to sit down and, and, and think about that, you know, what can we, what can we prove? What can, uh, you know, what can we prove definitively? What can we prove in a way that we're pretty sure this happened, but you know, there might be a few questions about it. And, and then what, what do we leave to, to myths and legends? Uh, you know, and, and that's, and that's a good way to be, I think, because we have to realize that what we believe is not always the truth. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, poking at what we know when we're trying to find out, you know, is the historical record wrong? Is it, you know, or could we interpret it in a different way? Maybe there's some more information we could find. That's never a bad thing, challenging your thought process or somebody else's. But also at that same time, we have to realize that the truth doesn't change, you know. And in this instance, 
you know, there are just so few records that really definitively prove this event occurred or even that the participants in the event occurred, uh, you, know, you know, were alive at the time, uh, that it makes it really hard to to take it as historical fact, but it also makes it, under, it also is understandable why people might want to take it and, uh, you know, like I say, have pride in it uh, or they let them, let it inspire them in some way. And so I think that that's something that we can take not just with this case of McCullough's Leap, but also with, you know, the broader American revolutionary era and also history in general. Al Dickinson, thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you, Brady. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.